If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 tonight will be in the first nine verses. Uh, one of the things that, if this is your first time, I see a lot of old friends and familiar faces. I also see a lot of new people. I'm excited to meet some new, I've already met some of you, and I'm excited to have you. If, if it is your first time, we want to welcome you. Um, we, sort of the, the, the theme verse for these conferences is uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 that you, you see on the screen when you come into the sessions. Um, and, and the first year that we did this, we preached a series of messages out of that verse. Uh, but what we try to do, for those of you that have been here over and over, you know that we, we don't uh, repeat messages. We, 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 each conference is, it's, has its own sort of focus. So I don't like to use the word theme. The theme is Jesus always. The theme is the gospel. Um, the theme is the advance of the church. Um, that's, that's the theme th- that we live our lives by. But there's a, there's a different focus. Um, and uh, this, this particular conference, so if you're new, you jump right in and, man, you're right there. And if you've been here before, um, then it just flows, it just builds. And, and each conference, hopefully, is, 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 has different application. And uh, one of the things that we do, someone said, how do you do that? How do you keep it fresh each time around? Well, it, the Bible. I heard uh, John Piper, uh, a pastor um, that a lot of you might be familiar with, say one time, if you took a, uh, he, he loves uh, Romans 11, verses, those last three verses of Romans 11, say, oh, the depth, the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his truths, how unknowable his ways, who has known the mind of the Lord, um, and who is uh, much farther than just physical protection. It's, most of us have no trouble, um, you know, going to fisticuffs over our wives or our kids. That's easy. But are we willing to fight for their holiness? Are we willing to fight for their purity? Are we willing to fight for their salvation and be vigilant in that fight? So we're to work, we're to keep, we're to provide, we're to protect. And then in, in Genesis two sixteen and 17, he gives Adam instruction by which Adam is to, now watch this, teach them the authority of God in their lives. He says, there's this one tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat it. Don't touch, you know, don't, don't let your kids go and, t- and take that fruit and eat it. And we see that when Eve is, uh, is deceived and, and, and lured by the serpent, that she um, even misappropriates the words that the Lord had said to Adam. So there seems to be a failure to instruct and teach. And so we would say in that third sort of category in Genesis 2, Adam was given the responsibility of pastoring, shepherding, leading his kids to a clear view of the authority of God in their lives, leading his wife to that. And so as men, one of the clearest messages we will send our wives, our sons and daughters, if you're a young single guy, this is important for you in preparing to be a husband and a father. Most important things that we'll ever do is to send the message that we are not the highest or final authority. That we serve and live and operate under the authority of the Most High God. When we when we sort of tap into that and grab hold of that, what it does is a couple of things. One, it enables me to lead my kids, to lead my wife, to lead if you've got a small group or you're a pastor or you're a small group teacher, Sunday school teacher, you've got a small group of boys um, at, at church, whatever. We're able to teach and lead and instruct with authority because it's not our authority. See, if we had to, if we had to do this under our own authority, we would have either a complete lack of confidence because we know our own sin and our own failure, don't we? Or we would abuse that authority to compensate for the fact that we know our own sin, we know our own failure, and we know we're not qualified personally. So we do what we do under the authority of God. The beautiful thing is the scripture lays out for us in more than one place 
so often we see in Scripture instruction on how we're to carry out and fulfill the responsibilities that God's given us. As much as Adam failed, the Bible tells us in passages like Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, that as Adam failed as our first father, a second Adam came along. His name is Jesus, and he is our ultimate head and representative if we have received the gospel. So we're no, no, no longer represented by the first Adam. We're represented by the second Adam. And so we're functioning under that authority and by that power. Amen? So Second Timothy chapter 2, a little background, a little context here. We want to make sure when we open God's Word that we don't do sort of like exegetical or expositional footwork to try to make it fit into a certain context. There's a clear context this is being written in, okay? Uh, this is most, uh, most theologians believe <coughs> that this is the last work that the Apostle Paul wrote. Now, we know that this is written, all scriptures breathed out by God. We know that this is written by literally the Lord himself through the pen of Paul, but we know that this is specifically Paul writing to Timothy. Now, Paul is in prison. In fact, at the end of this letter, he basically says, hey, man, I'm dying. Uh, it's, it's coming fast. I'm not going to be here much longer. And he lays out some things that he needs for Timothy to do for him. And, uh, and so he's given this sort of last instruction to this young pastor. Now, he's speaking to Timothy, who is a pastor. We say young pastor. Timothy, most theologians think, was probably in his 30s. So, so we think young, I, we, we tend to think, what was he like a 20 year old, 22 year old, 24 year old? Well, no, he was, he was seasoned probably in pastoral ministry because even some of the instruction that he's given for what elders, overseers and, and pastors are to be is that they're not to be young and immature in the faith. And so he's a young man in, in terms of some of you older guys, you, you get it. Like I say, well, I'm, you're in term 44 old, old bones are creaking. Some of you guys are like, I can't even remember 44. That was so long ago, you know, so it's, it's, everything's relative. And so you've got this older brother speaking to this younger brother in ministry. And so he's saying to him, here's sort of my last charge to you, my last commission to you. And what I want to do tonight is look at what Paul says to Timothy, uh, these things that are so important to him in terms of how this young man will pastor and lead his church. And I want to apply that both pastorally in our lives um, in, in the context of the local church, but also as men, we are called to shepherd and pastor and lead in the home. Now, again, I want to say, uh, again, that I know that some of you are single. Some of you are divorced and not remarried. You're, you're living in a single um, condition right now. Some of you are young men and, and God has not brought that woman along yet. Um, there should be a point where we're sort of tribal around here. There should be a point where you take a wife. That's what the scripture says. And so we, uh, we think that that is a really good picture. Um, you gotta be careful how you do that in our culture. Um, but, uh, <coughs> but we do believe that God has called men to shepherd and lead. Amen. We believe that we don't have to be ashamed when we stand on the authority of scripture and say, God has called men to lead their homes. He's called you as a man to lead your home. Past, present, and future. It's called you to lead your home. We do not have to apologize for the fact that Scripture lays out very different responsibilities in the context of the home and the church and community for men. And we want to embrace the responsibility that God's given us, again, because it's under His authority that we're called to do that. And so we're going to unpack this passage looking at practical application for our lives as well as God's intended purpose in giving this to Timothy. So we'll read... Uh, We'll just, we'll just start and, and, and we're going to read all nine verses and then we'll work through them. <coughs> Excuse my cough. I might have switched to a handheld. If it gets annoying, y'all let me know. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. This is the word of the Lord. So let's unpack it. Verse 1, he starts off and he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I love the fact that in the New Testament particularly, oftentimes when you see a challenge or an encouragement given from one brother to another or from a pastor to a group of believers, a pastor to a younger pastor, he'll say things like grace and peace or peace and grace and strength. And there's these, there's these power words. Oftentimes, you notice how in our society, in our culture, oftentimes we sort of dumb down the greeting to, to, to not even real words like sup. You know, or, or, I mean, they were kissing each other on the cheek. I don't know that we need to go that far culturally, but, you know, we're looking for fist bumps and, and things like this. Uh, but, but have you ever thought about some of the funny things that if you go to a different part of the world, different part of the country, where people speak the same language, but they have different, different greetings, you know, like, uh, like when you get up there next to the Canadian border, they use the word A in their greeting. You're doing all right, eh? called to be strong. We've been given strength, strength for the battle, strength for the contest. And he's going to unpack in this text and explain to us why we need that strength and why we need that grace. I need the Lord's grace every day because I'm going to fail. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to lose my cool. I'm going to be lazy. I'm going to have lustful thoughts. I'm going to say words I ought not say. I'm going to have attitudes I ought not have. I'm going to give looks that I shouldn't give. I'm going to ignore those I love. Or I'm going to bully those I love. I'm going to impose my will. I'm going to back down when I should stand up. I'm going to stand up when I should back down. I'm going to heap insult when I should heap grace. I'm going to domineer and control and dominate. Or maybe on the other side of that, I'm going to cower down and expect someone else to lead. And not take the God-given role that I have in my home. The list could go on and on. I need God's grace to help me, God's grace to encourage me, and God's grace to motivate me to get up and stay in the fight. And I need God's strength as an outworking of that grace not to fall into those things and to fight back to my feet when I do. You ever feel like you're just down? You're on your back. something, Something hits you. It's at work. It's at home. It's in the still, quiet hour of the night when everyone else is in bed and you've got your laptop open. And you feel like, how do I get up from this? In the fall, in uh, this next Be Strong event in September, a good friend of mine is going to be sharing. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be hearing from Bruce Crocker, a snowbird dad, uh, the father of one of our uh, full-time staff members, one of our directors. Um, powerful testimony. The Lord did some great things in his life. I don't want to... Uh, give you too much, but I will say, think grizzly bear attack survived. 
Just so you know, if you're sitting around tonight and you're trying to tell the coolest story, you're going to lose tomorrow morning, okay? It's over at that point. <coughs> but in September, a friend is coming in who is a uh, who, who, um, young man who has an awesome ministry to, to, to guys that struggle with PTSD and, and issues that are combat-related and powerful testimony. But it, he was telling me a story recently, and he's laying on his back in the middle of the story as he's telling me, uh, about uh, a, a firefight they were in and everybody's hit and everybody's bleeding and he's laying down and he's the guy with the saw, the squad automatic weapon. He's the guy that needs to, suppress, to lay down suppressed fire. And he said, all I could think was, I, I can't get up. I'm bleeding out. I'm, I can't breathe. And then he said, something said to me, this fight is not about you. And I thought, I said, stop. Can you come say that in September and be strong? Because your fight is not always just about you. I mean, sometimes it is. We've got to fight for our holiness. We're going to see that in a minute. But we're fighting for so much more. We're fighting for so much more. When I was, uh, years ago, I was attending a, a firearms training thing. And they made us do an exercise where we laid on our back. And he said, this is, this is to replicate a situation where you're on your back and you need to fight back to your feet. And they took us through a series of drills where you're shooting from your back and you got to, you know, there's a way that you stand up and you keep in. But the thing is, you keep putting rounds on target until you're back on your feet and into the fight. We need that, man. And you know how we get that? Grace and strength supplied to us from the Lord. Grace and strength. He's going to help us understand more specifically what that looks like. Verse 2, he says this. Let's, let's read it again. Well, you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. Here's what that means. I am to pass along what I learned. Timothy was to pass along what he knew, what he had learned, what he had been instructed. We as men are to be those who pass along what God's given us and instructed us with. Timothy, in this context, was to train other leaders and pastor them well. That's the context in the passage. But to look at an application of that in our own lives, could we do the same with our sons and daughters? with younger men and women in the church and in the community. This is the idea of being a messenger. I'm a messenger who's delivering a message. Going back to the garden, there were things that Adam was supposed to teach and instruct and lead and instill in his wife and kids, and he failed to do so. We carry a message. In fact, we carry many messages. Think of all that we can learn from older men and think of all that we can teach to younger ones. We have a responsibility to pass along the message and the mentoring of the gospel. To do this, we have to be students of the Word of God and students of older brothers. And in doing this, we will become faithful messengers. We've got a responsibility. I mean, we got a legacy. We talk about legacy. We talk about what we're going to leave behind. We got, but like, we have the gospel, and we have the work of the gospel to pass to those that we've been entrusted with. Verse three says, "Share." In suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Two words I want to key in on. Suffering and soldier. Paul tells the Romans in Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present life not worth to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. What glory? But do, uh, the older you get, especially some of you older brothers, do you get more and more excited about that day? When, where, when you enter a place where the sun doesn't shine because the radiant glory of the Most High shines brighter than the light of day. 
and where there is no night and where there is no darkness and there's no need of sun, stars, moon, constellations, not even to, not, not only not to give us light, but not even to reflect glory because we're in the presence of the one whose glory has been reflected forever and ever. We will be with Christ. I consider the sufferings of this present life not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in that day. There's a future glory that we strive for. When you're grinding it out next Tuesday in the mill or in the shop or on the concrete floor and you're hearing the stuff you're hearing and it's a cutthroat business you're in and you're dealing with people dying and people bleeding or you're trying to instruct and teach people that don't care what you got to say, whatever line of work or line of education you got to go back into next week, is it not wonderful to know that that's not the end goal. That's not the end game. We serve a king who sits on a throne because he has conquered. Because he's overcome. So the suffering of this life. So Peter connects us to that king by saying it this way. Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1. So in this way, suffering is, se- is seen as an arming of myself in the war for which I've been called to, which helps us understand sort of what's being said here in verse 3. This idea of suffering as a soldier. How do we suffer in light of 1 Peter 4.1 in the light of Romans 8.18. If we're to suffer like Jesus suffered, are we talking about Calvary? Are we talking about the, that, that walk up that hill? We, it seems that he's talking about something much bigger than that. In fact, in the same way that Christ was tempted, the Bible says in Hebrews 4 that he was tempted just as you and I are in every way, but he never sinned. Could it be that those of us who are created for a glorified place in the heavens with the glory of God revealing the fullness of who Christ is for all of eternity and 10,000 eons won't be enough to tell us just how good Jesus is. That to face one temptation in one breath in this life is to suffer. And he's saying suffering is war. You talk to any combat veteran in this room and they'll, they'll most likely, I've never talked to one that didn't say this and I'm not one, but I've never talked to one that didn't say there wasn't a day in that engagement, in that tour in that operation that they weren't longing for home home amen we suffer in the war against temptation we suffer in the battle that we arm ourselves with the mind of christ first corinthians two sixteen says and we go to war we take up arms we take up ephesians chapter you know in that beautiful passage at the end of ephesians in ephesians 6 where he talks about the armor of god and he talks about taking up the sword of the spirit which is the word of god we arm ourselves And in this way, we go to war. I'm to fight sin. I'm to fight temptation. I'm a soldier. Men, the life of a man of God is one of war. And we need to be good soldiers. We need to be good soldiers. We need to understand who our commanding officer is. We need to understand what our mission is. Verse 4, he gets into what that mission is. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The war is bigger than me. The battle is bigger than me. This ain't about me. If Satan can't completely defeat you, you know what he'll do? Distract you. He uses that word entangled. And he says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. You know this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine uh, an operator with Delta Force? 
and they're about to go on a big mission. And he's like, hold up, fellas, hold up. I'm running this online pyramid scheme. I got to make sure, hold up, hold, I'm about to sell three crates of um, body lotion. Uh, what are you doing? Like, these guys are going to be like, get, get off the helicopter, man. What are you doing? No, like, you don't get entangled in those things. You don't get entangled. There's, there's a mission and there is a command and a command center. And we've been given instruction. We've been called to task. And we're on mission. We have a single mission. But you know what Satan will do is if he can't defeat us, and he can't, by the way, he does not have the authority to defeat you and I. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And in Romans chapter 8, we are told that in Christ we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus. Like Satan can't do nothing with that. He cannot do anything with that. He is a liar. He's a schemer and a deceiver. And Scripture tells us we can be aware of his schemes so that we might thwart those schemes. You know what he'll do? C.S. Lewis talked about this a lot. You know what he'll do? If he can't attack you, bulldoze you, freight train you, put you on your back, he'll entangle you. He'll entangle you. He'll create a deception, like, like a, 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 a distraction, a diversion. Get you off task. What's this look like? This, this could, I, like, I don't want to stand here and give you, like, all the do's and don'ts and rules and listen. You know what I'm saying. What is it that would distract you from just being the man God's called you to be? Could it be something as simple as being consumed with your work? Well, sure. Yeah. All of a sudden, church is not really a big deal. You're not paying attention to your marriage or your kids. Young men who are single, you become obsessed with that educational pursuit or making that money because you're finally getting your own paycheck and one day it dawned on you, I think this means I'm an adult. And if we're not careful, we lose focus that our highest calling is to be conformed to Jesus daily. And he wants to entangle us. He wants to distract us. He wants to sidetrack us. Maybe you feel like, man, I'm not falling into Satan's traps at all. And the reality is maybe you, maybe you are. I know for me, this is hard, man. This is, this is, this is hard preaching because I've worn this all week. Yeah, how many days do I just get distracted? Get up, open God's word first thing in the morning, and then boom, you're distracted, swept away. You've got to be focused for the mission. I read a book in terms of understanding the mission. I read a book recently called The Men, The Mission, and Me. It was about a commanding officer of the, the first major offensive and operation in Afghanistan. This was early 2002. And what he does is he talks about how a good soldier, especially a good officer, will look at decisions he makes in this order. What does this decision mean for the men? He's talking about the men under him. What does this decision mean for the mission? And then what does this decision, this decision mean for me? Now, I think in the Christian life, we could talk about what order those go in. Because certainly, I love the quote by Robert McShane, the old Scottish pastor, who said, The greatest need that my people have for me is my personal holiness. Like the greatest gift I can give to my family or the people that I lead in ministry is for me to personally pursue Jesus every day. So in that sense, like, like, what does this mean for me? That's critical. But you take those three components, the mission, the men, and me, and you go, what, like, what is my life right now? This decision in this moment, this, or this season of life, this period of my life, what does this mean for the, the mission? What is the mission? The advance of the gospel, the advance of the church, both through personal relationships with people God's put in my path 
that I can speak truth and life into or the advance of the church in terms of evangelism in my community and to the ends of the earth, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, how I target conversations, what am I on mission? And then what does this mean for the men? What does this mean for your family? What does this mean for the people that you lead? I know for me, there have been oftentimes where I have to confess that ministry became so busy and active and work was so consuming up at five, not home till midnight. And all of a sudden, thankfully, God's given me a godly wife who stops me in my tracks and says, hey, you think maybe you think maybe you're taking this too far? Well, but little, there's thousands of people coming to Snowbird. What? I said, you think maybe you're taking this too far? Like, do you think maybe you've gotten to a place where you think God really needs you to make this work? Because there's a balance in there. Because I don't want to go, he doesn't need me? Great, I'm not going to go to work. This is awesome. I'm going hunting every day. I'm going fishing. We're going vacation. I tell you what, as a matter of fact, let's just move to the beach. Wait a minute, I don't like the beach. Let's stay in the mountains and just I won't go to work. Like, is that what we're saying? No, of course not. We've got to be on mission. We've got to be on task. We've got work to do. We've got to, but it's our task to balance those things. What is my life and my endeavors and my pursuits? What does all this mean for those God's entrusted me with? What does it mean for the greater mission? How am I speaking to those that God's entrusted me with? Am I speaking life into them? And then am I pausing and investing that into them? Time, words, money, the things in my life that speak volumes to those people God's entrusted me with in terms of relationship the men the mission and me a good soldier understands and asks these questions what does this mean for my men what does this mean for the mission what does this mean for me maybe we're talking about an advance at work maybe we're talking about a new job maybe we're talking about temptation with that woman who you've gone too far with verbally and emotionally and you know the next step on that slippery slope is unfaithfulness to pause under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and say, what does this mean for the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does this mean for my personal holiness? Is it, is it a lie from the enemy to think that if I click right here and open that image or watch that video, that it won't hurt anybody? It's just me and this video screen? Or can I pause for a minute under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and say, what does this mean for the gospel? What does this mean for my wife or my future wife or my future kids or my grandkids now? What does it mean for me if the calling God's placed on my life is called a holiness and to be conformed to Christ's image? I've got to be asking myself these questions. That's what a good soldier does. So he, he compares us to soldiers. He compares Timothy to a soldier. And he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So we fight temptation. We go to war. We take up arms. And we do battle against the enemy. And then in verse 5, he switches analogies an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules an athlete is not crowned unless to be an athlete requires discipline you're gonna live a disciplined life we're gonna be careful here there are those who would say well you don't want to talk about discipline because that leads to legalism No, no no legalism leads to legalism we're called to discipline I like, if I hear one more 20 year old tell me, oh, I don't think we should talk about discipline so much. It's just legalism. No, it's not. They're two different things, man. Legalism and discipline are two different things. If, if these are words that are unfamiliar to you, you're not a church guy, it, that could be a good thing. And I maybe shouldn't even explain it. But here's like, I grew up in a, in a church context where it, it, there was sort of this idea that if you followed certain rules, if like, don't like, we used to have, you know, some of you heard the old joke, don't drink, smoke or chew or go with girls that do. 
And if you drink a beer, you're hell bound like a freight train, right? Like there's like, the, like this, the don't category. Then there, in that same legalistic mindset, there's the, the do category. Like, okay, make sure that you tuck your shirt in and keep your hair off your collar. And don't drink caffeine. No, do. Coffee. Please, you know, like, am I doing the right rules? Am I doing the right? It becomes like this rules-based thing. That's legalism. Legalism is where we establish a set of rules or someone else establishes a set of rules that we adhere to that gives us a sense of righteousness based on our ability to follow the rules. What gives you your righteousness, man? Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 25. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might receive the righteousness of God. We receive that. So we're not talking about legalism here, but we are talking about discipline, aren't we? We're talking about discipline. In fact, if you look back, probably like one page in your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in about verse 11, listen to what Paul has told to Timothy in a previous letter. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Look at the words here. Fight, pursue, take hold of, and then witnesses. People are watching. People, like you matter to people. You may not realize it, but you're a big deal to somebody. And we're not talking about legalism when we say the word of God says pursue righteousness. The Word of God says, pursue godliness and steadfastness and gentleness. That's Scripture. Now I don't have to say, well, am I doing, am I drinking, eating, chewing, walking, working, do, like, start trying to fit everything into this, sort of into this, you know, like, like, like puzzle. No, just pursue righteousness and the Spirit of God will give you wisdom and discernment. Root yourself in the Scripture and the Word of God will be the light into your path. And then make sure there's good, strong accountability in your life. Good accountability. For some of us, the reality is this. And somebody might, I, don't, I, don't, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way. But for some of us, this is going to come easier than it is for others. Based on where you've been, what you've done, what you've seen. I don't know, but I just, it seems like some men just seem to go like gangbusters while others just seem to fight and flop and flail and just struggle through life. And I used to think, well, I need, as a pastor, I need to counsel. What do I say to these? Well, you just need to eye on the prize, hand to the plow. But I'm at a point after 20 years in ministry where I don't know the answer why some brothers just seem to fall on their face constantly. And I would say to you, get up and take another step. Fall again. Get up and take another step. And fall backwards because you get hit so hard. Get up and fight your way forward. I remember uh, I, pl- I played a couple years of college ball. Lord afforded me a scholarship to go to college. And I remember uh, we came, I remember getting, uh, you know, you have a recruiting trips and all this stuff. And you sign uh, in the spring that year, sign the scholarship. And I remember uh, that summer I had to go up for some meetings midsummer, And they gave us uh, a, a summer workout. Do this workout. And it was, it was pretty strange. Well, I had to work. I mean, my daddy made me work. So I was working a labor job. I was leaving the house about 6 a.m. I was getting home about 4 in the evening. And I had to do this like three hours worth of workouts. And I remember 
I remember, I remember busting my tail. I mean, I worked, I did every, and you had to initial, you know, like these, it was like a weight workout. And then it was like, you know, you know, a gym workout, a sprint workout, speed. uh, It was just crazy. It was three hours worth of, and and you had to document it and log it. I remember I got there with that log book. I was like, and nobody ever asked to see it. And I remember there's this kid named Brett Anthony, and he was the most undisciplined slacker I've ever seen in my life. And he was faster than everybody. He could jump higher, bench press more, squat more. And I remember saying, what'd you do all summer? He said, I hung out at the lake. I remember thinking, I hate you. Faster than me, stronger than me, a better athlete. But it, it, it seems like sometimes you see a guy, a brother, and you go, Man, why can't I have his life? He's just loving Jesus. His kids love Jesus. They never talk back to him. His wife respects him. The men at his work appreciate him. He's plugged in at church and people seem to care. Why can't I have his life? Well, you know, we could, we could really run down a rabbit trail here. But you, you don't know what his life is like, probably, for, for one, right? We don't know everything. until we, I mean, we get close to people and you see the ins and outs. But the bottom line is this. God has called you to holiness. He's called you and I to be soldiers and athletes and to be disciplined in the life of the Christian man. Timothy is not to shirk hardship, effort, or endurance. There's a need for severity of training for true athletes. We must train ourselves. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul tells Timothy to train yourself for godliness. It's not going to come easy. That word training is intense. We must have true aim, run to win, fight to knock the opponent out. These are good analogies, and Scripture is laced with them. Half-heartedness will lead to defeat and will never be enough. The athlete competes for a prize to be crowned. Timothy needs to know this, and so do we. There's a prize. There's a crown. So we're called to be messengers. We're called to be soldiers. We're called to be athletes. Strong word pictures. And the last one he gives us, We're called to be farmers. Verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So the messenger delivers the truth, the gospel, the greatest message of all. The soldier wages war for himself and for those around him. The athlete trains and competes for the prize, the crown of life. And now we see the farmer. I would dare to say, I've never been a farmer, but I've known quite a few. Some of you maybe grew up on a farm or you know farmers. There are probably not many people that work harder than farmers. My, my great-granddaddy, Leroy Holloway. Leroy, that's a good name. Should have named one of my boys Leroy. Talks back there going, mm. That's a good name. Leroy Holloway, I was 17 years old. It's the weekend of my 17th birthday. Um, and it was, uh, so this was my dad's granddad. So yeah, my great-granddad, Leroy Holloway. And he had farmed. My dad would tell stories about growing up and spending, you know, He'd just stay over on the farm at, at, at my great-granddad's place. And I remember we would spend a lot of time there in the summers. And I remember he had catfish ponds. And I loved going out there and fishing. And I remember saying, you know, Grandpa, will you come fishing with me? He's like, son, when I, I will, I, when I can, I'm going to get over there. I'm going to get. Uh, and I remember just always just working. If he wasn't in the field, he was fixing something that he broke in the field. And he wasn't going to the parts house and buying it. He was fabricating it. Farmers are like magicians. 
They can tear a transmission apart. They can rebuild a combine. They can row crop. They can frame a house. They can run electrical. They can do plumbing. They're hard workers. And I remember when, when I was 17, the weekend he died, I remember my, mom, my dad's on the phone talking to his uncle, and he says, how did he die? He'd never been sick, never been in the hospital, never been to the doctor, wasn't on any medication, 81 years old. And I remember my dad getting off the phone and saying, well, he died doing what he loved doing, working. And it dawned on me thinking about a farmer. My great-granddad started farming when he was about six and died farming when he was 81. And, and I think if you want a picture of, a, of, of like as a Christian godly dude, it ain't going to end for you until you breathe your last. Like there's no cruise control at the end of this thing. There's not like 40 years of good, hard labor pursuing Jesus. And if you do that, then when you hit about 70, you can just kind of, oh, I get my last decade to myself. Doesn't happen, does it, men? But we're going to labor, labor. What does a farmer do? Does he fight? No. Is he disciplined in the sense that an athlete is disciplined? No, not that way. He's disciplined, but it's different. He fights, but it's different. He labors. He labors. The soldier suffers and fights. The athlete trains and is disciplined and competes. The farmer works. We get real nervous here. You're saying, I've got to work for salvation. I've got to work for righteousness. got to work. No, Scripture is very clear. I mean, he started this off by saying, in the grace and strength that we've received. We don't work for salvation. We don't work for our holiness. But we are called to work, are we not? If Christ has begun a good work in me, he will be faithful to complete it in me. And we know that he'll do that through us. We're called to good works. We're spurned to good works. We're commanded to good works. Faith without works is dead. And so the message, uh, the message of the farmer is this. You know this is difficult work. And it, you can Im- only imagine, especially in the days of a single foot hand plow with no technology. I don't know how they irrigated. If they, you know, if they had the opportunity to dig trenches or if they're completely dependent on weather and nothing else. But the farmer has to labor for the fruit of ministry and life. If we're faithful, the Lord will bring about fruit to our labor. The athlete receives the crown, the prize. The farmer rakes that dirt back and digs that first handful of potatoes, taters, picks those first strawberries, pulls that first ripe apple. I mean, some of you guys, a lot of us garden. I love, I love the spring of the year when Little's, Little's making fried green tomato sandwiches and, fr- and, and, and like she's frying tomatoes all the time, man. We're like, like you're tomatoed out by like you don't eat them the rest of the year. But then, and it's good in the green phase, but then that first like good BLT with that juicy red tomato, I love it when she comes in and she's like, look what I got. I'm like, tonight we're eating pig. On white bread, amen, amen. With a juicy red tomato, the fruit of labor. The fruit of labor. If you've farmed, if you've planted, if you've done anything, the, the excitement. Imagine men, imagine brothers at the end of your journey, at the end of your labor, at the end of your toil, looking across a lifetime of fruit that you may not, not even recognize right now. Your faithfulness to the Lord will play out in faithfulness to your wife, faithfulness now to your future wife, single men, faithfulness to your children, faithfulness to your work, your employers, those that you've been entrusted to lead, that will play out and fruit will be born through that. 
For those of us that are pastor brothers and laboring in ministry, may we be vigilant when we get the midnight call or the 6 a.m. call. May we be vigilant to open God's Word and labor over the text for our people. May we work every man, one of us, for the fruit of labor. Is there anything wrong with that? No. No, it's right there. The farmer. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. What a beautiful picture. And so these illustrations suggest no distractions, but concentration. No half-heartedness, but exertion. No giving up or quitting, but persistence. Men, we are called to great but difficult things. And these things require commitment and dedication and faithfulness and obedience. In the last three verses, he just gives us two massive incentives and motivators. He tells us in verse 7 that we're to think over these things and the Lord will give us understanding, which reminds me of James 1, 4, where he says, if any of you needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And if you've got a couple of teenage girls in your house, amen, amen. Ask for wisdom, I promise God will give it to you. Whoo! I'm there. Any of you guys that have been there already, probably some younger dads would love to hear from you. Ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Paul tells us to think these things over and the Lord will give us understanding. When you open the Word of God and you go, I can't understand. It's so complicated. It's so difficult. No, listen, man, it's not. If you'll be faithful to dig into the Word of God, He'll be faithful to reveal truth to you. And He gives us these two great incentives, these two great motivators to empower us. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You want a motivator? Your God died on purpose. But there ain't no grave that could hold his body down. And praise be to God that he crushed our final enemy, death. And he didn't stay dead. He destroyed the grave. But he didn't just destroy the grave. The scripture teaches us that after his resurrection, he ascended and is exalted to the right hand of the Father. Whereby he will judge me and you, the living and the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on your worst day will be the engine that drives and motivates and empowers you. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. How do I live the Christian life? Give us more practical. Give us more. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. That's good. That's empowering. That's motivating. And the last thing in verse 9 that he says, so he says, remember Christ risen from the dead. This resurrection is our power. And then in verse 9, but the word of God is not bound. We have an unbound, sufficient, authoritative word from the Lord right here. Somebody says, I just need a word from the Lord. You got it, brother. Right there it is. Open it. Read it. It's, It's unbound. Unbound. The cat just came back from space, spent a year in outer space. That's a brave dude. They say he grew like three inches. It's just no, no gravity compressing his body, just kind of whoop. Just kind of like, what a free and thing. Some of you are like, I could go for three more inches of height, man. Like, I'm vertically challenged. 
Imagine no restraint, nothing binding you, nothing, nothing dragging you down. We talk about the stress and pressures of life that drag us down, and they do. I know they do. You're stressed at work. You're stressed at home. There is something that is accessible to you when you go to bed tonight, when you wake up tomorrow morning, when you go through your day, and it is the Word of God because it is not bound. It is the authority that we live our lives under, and it is sufficient for everything. And don't you be apologetic for being a man who believes that this is literally given to us by the God who created us all. Don't you be apologetic. Read it. Love it. Don't ever think you'll master it, but strive daily to be mastered by it and to come under its authority. It'll master you. It'll empower you. It'll change our lives. And as men, we want to be given a job. We want to be given tools. And we want to be, we want to be pointed in the right direction. And man, I'm telling you, 2 Timothy 2, 2 through 9, 1 through 9 does just that. Here's tools. Here's equipping. Here's word pictures. And as we work through this weekend, we'll continue to unpack these truths. Get real practical. I'm so grateful for the word of God. Amen. Focus this year is soldiers, athletes, farmers. And I love it. I'm loving it. You want to talk about drilling into the heart of a dude. Right there it is. Amen. And I'm not ashamed to say that God has called me as a man to certain and specific things that I don't have to apologize to the media or the world around me or anybody else. Just be the man God's called you to be. Amen. All right. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for these men, these brothers. I thank you for their excitement to be here and to hear from your word. I pray that tonight you'd encourage each of us from your word. Lord, I know that for me personally, this has been a text that has been invigorating. I confess that oftentimes in the preparation of the text, there's a struggle, there's a fight, there's a, there's a, there's, there's a strain to bring things together and see them through the lens of personal application. But Lord, for me personally, if for nobody else in this room, I want to say that this has been extremely motivating. What it must have been like to be Timothy, the young pastor, facing the next season of ministry without his mentor. In a church that was loaded with turmoil and strife and dissension. God, we live in a broken world. But you called us to be light in the darkness. And you've given us word pictures and tools and an equipping. So please help us to be the men you've called us to be. Lord, I want to pray before we disperse and go. Some to share groups and some to sit around the fire. And some to hang out and do some wreck and just enjoy the evening. I want to ask. Again, that for each brother that's come here this weekend, you'd speak to, to our hearts and our minds and you would teach us and instruct us as we humble ourselves before you, Lord. Your word says both in James's letter and in Peter's letter that if we humble ourselves before you, you'll exalt us, you'll lift us up in your time. Lord, tonight we come to you and we humble ourselves and we ask you to give to us wisdom and understanding clarity and direction and refreshment and refilling this weekend. Lord, we all need this, and I pray that it would be a time of enrichment, encouragement, brotherly fellowship, confession of sin, an overwhelming sense of joy and worship because of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray.
All God's brothers said, amen. Uh, we're not really God's brothers, but you know what I'm saying. Um, Jesus' brother. Um, so we're done for the evening. I think there's some church groups that are here that are going to do like a share group thing. I guess you know who you are. And other than that, man, just fellowship. It's just 9 o'clock. Some of you are like, I can't even make it. And some of you, are, you know, you're going to be going three hours from now. So enjoy the evening. Um, and and we'll, uh, we'll have breakfast in the morning. And then we'll be in here. I'm excited to hear from Bruce Crocker. It's going to be awesome. And, uh, and then one other announcement for tomorrow after that. I'm sure you've looked at the schedule, but we'll be splitting up married men and single men doing a couple breakout sessions, okay? Um, so you guys have an awesome evening.